0: It's Leviticus chapter 14, verses 1 to 32. The Lord said to Moses, These are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it, together with the cedarwood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop, into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce them clean. After that, he is to release the live bird in the open fields. The person to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair and bathe with water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. After this, they may come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. On the seventh day, they must shave off all their hair, they must shave their head, their beard, their eyebrows and the rest of their hair. They must wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water and they will be clean. On the eighth day they must bring two male lambs and one ewe lamb, a year old, each without defect, along with three tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. The priest, who pronounces them clean, shall present both the one to be cleansed and their offerings before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then the priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering along with the log of oil. He shall wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He is to slaughter the lamb in the sanctuary area where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it in the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the oil in his palm and with his finger sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. The rest of the oil in his palm, the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed and make atonement for them before the Lord. Then the priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from their uncleanness. After that, the priest shall slaughter the burnt offering and offer it on the altar together with the grain offering and make atonement for them, and they will be clean. If, however, they are poor and cannot cannot afford these they must take one male lamb as a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for them, together with a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, a log of oil, and two doves or two young pigeons, such as they can afford, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. On the eighth day they must bring them for their cleansing to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. The priest is to take the lamb for the guilt offering together with the log of oil and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He shall slaughter the lamb for the guilt offering and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. The priest is to pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand and with his right forefinger sprinkle some of the oil from his palm seven times before the Lord. Some of the oil in his palm he is to put on the same places he put the blood of the guilt offering, on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. The rest of the oil in his palm the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed to make atonement for them before the Lord. Then he shall sacrifice the doves or the young pigeons such as the person can afford. One is a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering together with the grain offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the one to be cleansed. These are the regulations for anyone who has a defiling skin disease and who cannot afford the regular offerings for their cleansing. And the Gospel reading this morning, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. Thanks
1: Tim for reading and well done for listening and particular well done if you took up the challenge to read the first 15 chapters of Leviticus. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, it might be discouraging, but um, we are going uh, to give an overview of the first half of the book this morning. Uh, This is the first of four talks uh, in the book of Leviticus. We're not going to cover it in detail, but hopefully uh, give you uh, a handle on it so that you can uh, read it more yourself and feel like you understand, at least in part, what it's all about and why it's in the Bible. Uh, I must say, up front, I'm indebted to two sermon series that I've heard over the years on the book of Leviticus, one from uh, St. Helens Church in London, one from Trinity Church, Colonel Light Gardens. Uh, I've been helped by... Uh, by that. It's a strange world, isn't it? The, the world of Leviticus that we just had read. Uh, a distant culture, odd practices. I mean, when was the last time you came into church and found someone with uh, a bit of blood and oil on the, the right lobe of their ear and thumb and Big toe. It all seems rather foreign and even irrelevant for life here in 21st century Adelaide. It raises the question which you've got on your sheets: Why bother with Leviticus? Why are we even bothering spending four weeks in this book? Well, two convictions uh, that guide us. Firstly, all scripture is useful. Uh, 2 Timothy 3:16. Uh, Paul says, all scripture, and he's talking predominantly about the Old Testament, is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. All of scripture is useful, including Leviticus. It might be difficult to understand, but it is from God, breathed out by him, and useful. And at Barney's, we do our best to give you a, a, a diet of the whole Bible, No book is off-limits or irrelevant, Uh, and we've got a kind of medium-term project uh, here at the moment where we're working through, or at least trying to preach, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah. We started with Genesis, I think, back in 2018. We've got to Leviticus, and uh, hopefully in the next two or three years, uh, we'll do Numbers and Deuteronomy as well. My hope and prayer, as I said, is that we'll all grow to uh, love and appreciate this book and and understand how it helps us to understand God and the Lord Jesus better. So all scripture is useful. Secondly, revelation is progressive. You see, when God wanted to reveal himself, he didn't just enter the world in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, we do have the ultimate revelation of God, the the clearest, the most complete revelation of God. But God had been revealing himself for hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. And the Old Testament provides the groundwork for Jesus' arrival. 1,500 years of history and culture of the nation of Israel preparing the way for Jesus to come. The Old Testament, if you like, is a book of promise and the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. Now the implications of that are you can't understand Jesus fully without some knowledge of the Old Testament. You can't understand Jesus fully without Leviticus. See, Jesus is described in language that only makes sense in light of the Old Testament. So words like sacrifice and priest and atonement and uncleanness, words that come up in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, words that are fairly familiar to us, well, they only really make sense when you understand something of the Old Testament because it's the Old Testament that defines what a sacrifice is. So if someone wants to know God, I I will still tell them, read a gospel first. I wouldn't tell them, you've got to read the whole of the Old Testament before you uh, get to Matthew. But in reading the gospels, there will be concepts and pictures and rituals that are going to require explanation. For example, start in John's gospel, you read John 1, and Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that in, it's in isolation isn't going to make much sense. You need to understand something of Exodus and the story of the Passover and the lamb who was sacrificed in the place of the firstborn son. So that's why it's great to read the gospel on your own, but even better to read it with a Christian friend who can kind of fill in and explain some of the concepts. You can't understand Jesus fully without Leviticus, Second, you can understand Jesus with Leviticus. Now you might think that's just saying the same thing, and in a way it is. But it's helpful to point out, I think, because it answers the postmodern idea that Jesus is open to all manner of interpretation. You know, I've got my idea of Jesus and you've got yours and they're both equally valid. But they're not. Because In the Old Testament, God has given us the framework and the categories and the promises within which to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is not whoever I imagine him to be. He is who God has revealed him to be. So someone might say, you know, I I like to believe in Jesus as a great teacher and political leader. And that's true as far as it goes. But if you're saying that's all Jesus is well, then you're ignoring huge parts of what God has said about who Jesus is, that he's the promised king, that he's the suffering servant, that he's the, the true high priest. Does that make sense? So you, the, the Old Testament means it, it confines how we understand Jesus. He's not just whoever I imagine him to be. No, he's, he's who God has revealed him to, To be, which comes from all the categories, the groundwork that was laid through 1500 years of Old Testament. Thirdly, this is going the other way. You need Jesus to fully understand Leviticus. In other words, we need to understand Leviticus in the light of its fulfillment in Jesus. We can't just read Leviticus as directly applicable to me. You know, if you find yourself with a skin disease, you don't need to come to me as the priest to of tell you which animals need to be slaughtered for your cleansing since Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament we need to ask well in what ways does Jesus fulfill Leviticus so that we can understand how it applies to us today hopefully we'll give you some examples over the next few weeks so that's why we're bothering with Leviticus hopefully that means you're a little bit motivated to keep going Uh, but what is it about I think the central idea of the book is the holiness of God Uh, kind of in the middle of the book uh, chapter 19 Moses says speak to all the congregation sorry God says uh, to tell Moses speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy that same phrase comes half a dozen times through the book it's quoted a number of times in the new testament and it's one of the key things uh, that the book of leviticus teaches it teaches us what it means for god to be holy now this is um this is kind of striking i reckon what does holy mean well you could look up the word holy in a dictionary maybe even better, a Bible dictionary, and it would give you a definition. It would tell you that the word holy means distinct or other, set apart, special. And those adjectives are helpful as far as they go. What the book of Leviticus gives us is not adjectives, but actions, stories, rituals. Leviticus is full of rituals, And they show us what God's holiness means. See, Leviticus doesn't just give us a definition of God's holiness, like a a flat definition. No, it enables us to encounter it, to see it, to to grasp what it means to say that God is holy in, in a way far richer and more powerful than you could get from mere adjectives. So, Leviticus is about the holiness of God. With that lengthy introduction, let's jump in. But as I said, don't worry, we've only got 15 chapters to cover. There are three big units in uh, the first half of the book. And if you've got the church Bible, the little introduction gives you a breakdown of the book and um, uh, follows this structure. So chapters 1 to 7 are all about offerings, sacrifices. Chapters 8 to 10 are about the priests. And 11 to 15, about the things that make you unclean and how to become clean again. Three big units, and they give us three big lessons about God's holiness. Again, on your sheets. Firstly, God's holiness is acknowledged in sacrifice. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And so begins seven chapters of instructions about the offerings that are to be brought. And there are different kinds of offerings if you kind of flick through the pages, uh, instructions about burnt offerings and grain offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings and guilt offerings. It's quite a lot of flexibility in terms of uh, what you can offer, so it can be a cow or a sheep or a bird, depending on how much you can afford. Uh, the grain can be uh, uncooked or baked, different kinds of grain are allowed. But these are different offerings for different occasions. But they all express this idea that God's holiness is acknowledged in sacrifice. Two principles come out of this. Two uh, principles that, if you lived in this world, this world of Leviticus, of daily offerings and sacrifices being made, these are two of the things you'd understand about God's holiness. Firstly, to acknowledge God's holiness is a costly thing. You make sacrifices as a costly devotion to a holy God. I think most of us are familiar with the idea of sacrifice as a payment for sin, and that's the second principle we'll come on to. But some of the sacrifices aren't about paying for sin. They're basically just a way of saying thank you saying, I love you. They're a way of giving something to God to, to say how brilliant you think he is. And at various times in the Old Testament, there are elaborate offerings made, thousands of animals slaughtered. You know, At the dedication of the temple, Solomon makes an offering of over 140,000 cows and sheep and goats. You know, took more than one day to kill all those animals but basically a very expensive way of saying God you're the best. You see in the world of Leviticus the currency of the day was animals. You could tell a rich person because they had more cows, poor person maybe just had a couple of pigeons. The currency was not the dollar or the pound but the, the cow. Sacrifice acknowledges God's holiness because it it shows that God is worthy of costly devotion. Uh, let me illustrate. Kind of illustrate. Uh, I'm quite partial to a good steak. I don't know if you are, but I don't eat steak every day. I can't afford it. You know, you go to a restaurant and you're paying thirty or forty dollars for a you know, whatever, a rump steak. And that's only 12 ounces of meat. Just think how expensive it would be to buy a whole cow. I don't know how much a cow costs, but a fairly sizable portion of your income. And what do you do with it if you're in the world of Leviticus? You take your cow and you kill it and you burn it on the altar because you're saying to God, I want to acknowledge your holiness in a costly way. I want to show my devotion to you by giving this very costly thing. Uh, The same idea is seen in the fact that whatever animal you bring, whatever you can afford, is to be without defect. And and when you bring a grain offering, it's it's to be the finest flour. You can't fob God off with a, a lame sheep or a blind goat only the best will do. Now, you could use adjectives to describe God's holiness. He's, he's worthy. But when you enter the world of Leviticus, this world of costly sacrifice, you, you grasp God's holiness in a far richer way, don't you? The New Testament picks up this idea of sacrifice, it talks about a sacrifice of Praise and thanksgiving to God. Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy, in view of the abundant mercy that God has shown to us, we are to offer what? Our life. We're to offer our bodies, our bodies, as a living sacrifice and it says this is our act of worship this is our way of saying to God you're brilliant you are worthy of something very costly here's my life here's my body given in devotion to you what does that mean to offer your body well it means that part of the way we worship God and say God we think you're the best is in the way that we live our lives our lifestyle our behavior out of gratitude and love and devotion to God, I will abstain from certain sexual practices and I will open my home and my life in costly hospitality and I will give generously of my income to help those in need because God is worthy. God's holiness is acknowledged in sacrifice. And as you read about these elaborate rituals and costly offerings, the first thing we're to see is these people love God very much. He is holy. He is worthy of costly devotion. The second idea contained in the offerings is that God's holiness is acknowledged in sacrifice that makes payment for sin. This I think we're more familiar with. Not all the sacrifices are to do with um, dealing with sin, but some of them are, particularly the sin offerings, chapter four, the guilt offerings, chapters five and six. God's holiness is about moral purity, and therefore sin and moral impurity really matters. Here the sacrifices aren't just about offering something costly, but about something dying to pay. Or atone for my sin. As you read, particularly the the sin offering, there's a big emphasis on blood. Blood signifies that the death of the animal, the blood is poured out to show that something has died. God is holy. And people cannot come near to a holy god without their sin being dealt with and these offerings show that the way to deal with sin is through sacrifice god is morally pure he's holy we, we can describe it using adjectives but enter the world of leviticus this world where sacrifices are being made day after day year after year, and blood was everywhere, so that the the tabernacle was less like like a chapel, more like an abattoir because of all the blood that was pouring around the place. And you begin to feel the force of God's holiness, the the seriousness of sin. You know, I, I commit a sin and a sheep gets slaughtered. God's holiness is acknowledged in sacrifice because there needs to be payments for sin. Much more on that next week when we're going to look at the Day of Atonement in chapters 16 and 17. Secondly, and we're going to get quicker as we go, God's holiness requires qualified mediators. This is chapters 8 to 10, all about the priesthood. God's holiness requires qualified mediators. Aaron, Moses' brother, and Aaron's sons are to be the priests. Chapters 8 and 9 describe their ordination service and it's very involved, lots of blood, because the priests themselves have to be cleansed and purified in order to be qualified to appear before God and serve in his presence in the tabernacle. I think we get something of the, the idea of this. Um, you know, if something is special or important, you don't just let anyone do the job. You find someone who's suitable, someone who's qualified. So this doesn't work perfectly, but imagine you want to work for the police, then um, you would have to go through a pretty rigorous application process. I guess. pretty sure, I hope.) Um, Because they want to make sure that you're the right kind of person to be a police officer. And even once they've accepted your application, they're going to put you through very rigorous training to make sure that you're qualified for the job. Not just anyone can be a police officer. If you're not qualified, if you're not the right person, you get sent out into a high conflict situation, you're going to get hurt. That could be dangerous for you and for other people. The priest's job was to be a mediator between God and the people. They served in the tabernacle, later the temple. They represented the people in the presence of God. It was a very special job because God is holy. Now, again, Tell you in adjectives what God's holiness means, or you can see it in these actions, these rituals, these procedures, the sheer palaver of what the priest had to do just to remain qualified to stay in God's presence. Or look at just how dangerous it is when you become unqualified or unfit to serve. Chapter 10. Tells us about just such a situation. Chapter 10, verse 1 Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. God says, I will be proved holy. I will show myself to be holy. You wanna, you wanna see, you wanna know what God's holiness means. Well, God shows His holiness here. It's a dangerous thing. Fire that comes out from Him. Anger that might consume the whole community. Because the mediators, these mediators, the sons of Aaron, had paid no attention to the requirements that God had set. God's holiness is acknowledged in sacrifice. God's holiness requires qualified mediators. Thirdly, God's holiness makes distinctions. This is chapters 11 to 15, third and final block. And in these chapters, we have a whole list of distinctions between what is clean and what is unclean for God's people. So chapter 11 is all about clean and unclean food, which animals are clean. You've got to look at uh, their hooves and ha- how they eat and how many legs they've got. Uh, chapter 12 is about childbirth and how that makes you unclean and what you need to do to become clean again. Uh, chapters 13 and 14 about skin diseases and mold or mildew. Chapter 15. Uh, the chapter that makes the schoolboy snigger is about bodily discharges. All about clean and unclean and the precise distinctions being made. What do we learn about God's holiness here? Well, again, I think we all understand the idea of having uh, certain things set apart for special use. So it might be a dinner set. That only comes out on special occasions. Or you might have clothes that you only wear for certain celebrations. You might have your Sunday best. Not so common nowadays. You know, if, if the Queen came to visit you, I'm sure you would, you know, make sure everything that you served her with was the very best that you owned. You know, in fact, if the Queen came to visit you, apparently, you'd have to build a new toilet. That's uh, what needs to happen when the queen comes to call. But we get this idea, don't we, you know, that we have special things set apart for special use. And I think that's part of what's going on with these distinctions. You see, people have tried to work out that the reasons for why some things are clean and unclean. So, you know, are the unclean animals the kind of unhygienic animals? And the 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 certain spots on your skin that make you unclean, are, are they the ones that are more medically serious? But none of those attempts have really worked. There doesn't seem to be obvious reasons. It's just God making distinctions. It's not that God's being fussy But he's been rightly particular. He's saying not just anything will do. Certain things won't do. You see, to be unclean means that you are unacceptable to God. It means you can't come near to God until you've become clean again. And here's the worrying thing. As you read through, it becomes clear that some of the things that make you unclean are just very normal parts of being a human being. For example, the food laws, you might think, well, that's simple enough, I'll just avoid those animals and only eat those. But actually, these laws were saying whole groups of people who didn't have these dietary laws were excluded. They were unclean. Or think about childbirth or discharges. You know, there's nothing sinful about having a period, That's the thing. Some things that are just normal human, you know, part of everyday life, put you in the category of being unclean, at least for some time. Unacceptable to God, unable to come near to Him. You have leprosy. That's not your fault, but it puts you in the unacceptable category. God's holiness makes distinctions. And yet in various ways, humanity finds itself in the unclean camp. And part of what's going on in these chapters in Leviticus is trying to remedy that. Providing the sacrifices and offerings and the periods of time to wait and the various washings that you might go through so that you can become clean. But sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in the unclean camp again. So what do we learn about God's holiness? As I said, this is just an overview, so we're not getting into details, but three things. God's holiness is acknowledged in sacrifice. Sacrifice as an act of costly devotion. Sacrifice as a payment for sin. God's holiness requires qualified mediators. And we see it's very dangerous if you're not qualified. And God's holiness makes distinctions, clean and unclean. And because of that, God's holiness excludes many of us. In fact, it excludes all of us at one time or another. But as we said at the start, revelation is progressive. God gives these laws, these rituals, three and a half thousand years ago, so that when Jesus arrives, we understand him better. Because Jesus is the ultimate offering. Jesus offers his life in costly devotion to God and sacrifices himself on the cross as the ultimate payment for sin. Jesus is the perfect priest, the one who is perfectly qualified to mediate between a holy God and sinful people. And Jesus is the one who can make you and me clean, acceptable to God. When you hear that reading from Mark's gospel that Tim read earlier, when you, when you hear it immediately after Leviticus 14, and I'm sure you kind of were getting a bit bogged down in all the rituals of Leviticus um, 14, you know, becoming clean is a really big deal. It's not easy. It's complicated and involved. And then you read in Mark... And you see that becoming clean is so simple for Jesus. The man with leprosy comes to Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. In other words, you can make me acceptable to God, acceptable to a God who is holy and worthy. Who hates sin? That the God from whom fire comes out to devour those who are not qualified. That the God before whom I am often in the unacceptable camp. And we're told that Jesus was indignant, or other translations say filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, "I am willing. Be clean." And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. And then it's lovely. Jesus tells him, and I don't know about you, when I've read Mark's gospel in the past, I've kind of skipped over these verses, but Jesus tells the man, go and show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. In other words, that the sacrifices given in Leviticus 14. Do it as a testimony to them, to the priests. You see, here are the people who knew Leviticus the best. They'd been studying it for 1,500 years. They knew Leviticus 14 backwards, all the rituals, all he had to do. But I bet they'd never seen this before. Someone who had leprosy, who met a teacher, who touched him, and the leprosy left him. Go and show yourself to the priests. Go and show those priests that the Leviticus they've been studying... For 1500 years has been fulfilled. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are holy. And we thank you for showing us something of what your holiness means in these rituals the costliness of sacrifice that acknowledges you, the the death of sacrifice that pays for sin and impurity, the priests who had to be so careful and whose job was so risky as they served in your holy presence, and the distinctions that so often exclude us. And Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who fulfills all these things who is the sacrifice who is the priest who is the one who can make us clean we praise you for him amen what can wash away